this is the last in um, a series called Deeper that we've been looking at, where we've been um, exploring the book of 1 John 5. And um, 1 John 5, Thomas already gave, 1 John, sorry, um, Thomas already gave a bit of a background for that, but um, it's written, a letter written to the early church by the disciple John. And so far we've, we've looked at how God is the light. We've asked, what do people see when they look at us? Do they see Jesus? What are the signs of his love in our lives? And how do we allow our heart to become God's home? So if you've missed any of these talks, they're all online, so I'd highly recommend that you go and have a listen. There was a couple that I missed um, when I was through serving with the kids, so I caught up, and they're great. Um, But like I say, today we're exploring the last chapter, which is chapter 5, and it is on, in these Bibles, page 924. I'm going to pop the Bible down. Otherwise, the stand will fall. (laughs) So we're going to be exploring the idea of what it means to be a church family. And a family is right up here on our uh, banner of eight important values that we hold at the heart of Inverness Vineyard. So it's quite important that we explore what we mean when we put family at the heart and family is one of our values. So in our vision statement, it says... We want people not just to be part of a crowd, but part of a life-giving, honest, real community where there's a place for everybody. So what does this mean to be a church family? What does this look like? And what does um, 1 John chapter 5 have to say about this? So just to start you off um, with a bit of a story about my family, I've got these recipe cards up here because I've called the talk a family recipe. And um, I was thinking about all the different cooking styles in my family. Um, They are very varied, very different. Um, So my mum is usually the one who does all the cooking. Growing up, she was the one that had the most experience. She was an incredible cook, and I can hardly remember anything that she didn't cook well. Um, Mostly it was all down to her instinct, her experience, the fact that she could improvise if something went slightly wrong or she had a missing ingredient then she just knew what to do just to make it right. But the problem is when you're really, really good at something is often people do remember that one time that you kind of didn't do so well. (laughs) Isn't that the case? (laughs) So I remember this recipe that she followed for lemon chicken. Um, And it goes down in history as the worst meal that she's ever cooked. (laughs) Um, So basically the recipe called for nine lemons... And everything within her was like, this can't be right. Nine lemons and one chicken, this must be wrong. But she followed it anyway, and she ignored her instinct. And it was so lemony, it was so overpowering, it was so bitter that we couldn't eat it. And I think it was someone's birthday as well. I, think, I can't remember if it was my birthday or my brother's birthday. So it wasn't the best birthday meal. Anyway, on the whole, she was an, an amazing cook. Now, my dad was the opposite. You would rarely find him in the kitchen. Um, kind of a stereotypical dad, really. It was baked beans on toast if he had to cook, or scrambled egg on toast, or cheese on toast. Toast seemed to be the common theme. <laughs> um, he, yeah, I can't really remember much that he cooked that didn't involve toast. But he, there was once that he decided to branch out and experiment, and he decided, instead of just going for something simple, to go for this quite fancy recipe of poached pears in a red wine and chocolate sauce. <laughs> which sounds very fancy and lovely if it worked out well, but it didn't. So the 
The pears were raw in the middle. The red wine hadn't quite evaporated off, so it was really alcoholic and bitter and, oh, it was horrible. He never again branched out. He just stuck to the on toast after that. He does do very good baked beans. He knows which ones are the best. He, he, he gives great recommendations for the best place to buy baked beans. My oldest brother, Aaron, he got my mum's genes. He definitely has the instinct. Um, he definitely uh, has a lot of experience. And one of his kind of signature moves is to pick really top quality ingredients, which is really important. And he also is known for buying really fresh spices from an Indian spice shop to make a homemade curry. So everything's really fresh and really good, really high quality. So he is a great cook, but he's also an engineer and he likes to plan and organize and put, pour a lot into the planning. And there was one year that he cooked Christmas dinner for us all, which was great. We were really looking forward to it. When we arrived, there's this huge spreadsheet on the fridge. <laughs> I think it was two A4 sheets. And everything was like, put this in the oven then, take this out of the oven then, chop the onions, chop this, you know, boil this. And I think it had covered like 48 hours of his, you know, his prep. It was crazy. So, I mean, he's ticking things off as he went, but he hadn't quite got the timings right. And no word of a lie, Christmas dinner was served. I think it was supposed to be about three or four o'clock in the afternoon. It was served at about eight or nine. It was amazing, from what I can remember, but the hunger had completely taken over, so we have very little memories of that Christmas dinner. It was great. There was lots of different meat and lovely, delicious things, but we ate it very quickly. The kids were still awake as well, which made that very interesting. Now, Lauren, my older sister, is visiting us today with her family. She has a reputation for being the best baker. My, my dad has called her the queen of cakes. Um, and it's true, she is the queen of cakes. After I had Evie, who's our third daughter, um, she was coming around almost every other day with a new cake. <laughs> and I didn't have enough visitors at all. So I was like eating half the cake myself, and the other half was going to visitors. And then there was more cake coming. I was like, I can't keep up. Stop. Don't stop. <laughs> She didn't cook as many cakes after Beth, I was a bit disappointed. <laughs> um, my younger sister, Farah, she's, she's very experimental. And especially when we were teenagers, she'd just try anything new. And um, yeah, just sort of wacky, crazy ideas. Oh, maybe this will work, maybe that'll work. And once she cooked some pasta, couldn't find any ingredients for a sauce, raided the fridge, found orange juice and mushrooms, and thought, maybe it's a match made in heaven. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> Um, we tried it, one mouthful each, I think, very hesitantly, um, and it was awful. It does not go together. Don't try it. Well, you can. Maybe it'll be your taste, but no. <laughs> um, I um, probably, I, I, I'm not the most natural cook. I have to stick to a recipe. Um, I'm a pharmacist, so basically I approach a recipe like I approach a scientific formula. It cannot be deviated from at all. If it says five mils, you measure it with a measuring, uh, medicine spoon, sorry. Yeah, that's actually what I do. I'm not, I'm not joking. <laughs> Everyone thinks I'm joking when I say that. I'm really not. <laughs> um, so I'm very exact and very precise. But mostly that's because I'm really insecure about what if it goes wrong and I don't know what to do because I don't have the instinct that my mum does. Anyway, the point that I'm trying to make here is that it doesn't really matter what the cooking style is. Then all good recipes need um, key ingredients. So that's why I've called this talk a family recipe. Because the passage that we're going to look at today uh, describes three main ingredients that are needed in a church family. So it's a bit like one of these old recipe cards that I've got, got up here. Maybe some of you have these recipe cards. 
handed down from your granny to your mom to you. Um, it doesn't change. The recipe doesn't change. It's the same one that your granny's cooked for, you know, decades. And in the same way, this recipe that John gives us in this chapter, um, the recipe for family, for church family, hasn't changed. 2,000 years and it hasn't changed. So we're going to read from verse 1, 1 John chapter 5, verse 1 to verse 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So the three main ingredients that we're going to be looking at today are trust in Jesus, obedience to God, and love for each other. So firstly, placing our trust in Jesus. And I've taken this from the first verse where it says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So belief in Jesus is what starts us off as church family. It's what makes us church family. It's what defines us as church family. It's our hallmark. It's the reason that we call ourselves born again or believers or children of God. It's where we get these phrases. Anyone, anywhere across the world who believes that Jesus is their saviour and the Messiah sent by God to rescue the world from brokenness is part of the massive global church family, which is estimated today at 2.3 billion people worldwide. And whenever I read something like that, I wonder, how did they count all those people? <laughs> I don't know how they did it, but it's, it's an estimation, but that's a big family. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5 in the New Living Translation says this, that God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. So if we believe in Jesus, we are born again into God's family. We are his children. We're brothers and sisters together in Christ. So what does this passage mean when it talks about belief? Well, the word here that is um, translated a few times as belief or faith is this root word. I can't pronounce Greek, but it's something like pitho, um, to be, which means to be persuaded. So it's to do with persuasion. But not kind of persuasion where you're persuaded to believe in something that's not true. It's to be persuaded of what is trustworthy. So belief in Jesus is not um, about this kind of blind faith where it's kind of based on a lack of experience of him or a lack of knowledge of him. Rather, belief is trust. And uh, belief in Jesus is trusting the only one who we can always trust. He's completely trustworthy. And trust grows with time. It's at its strongest when it's built on a foundation of knowing the person for a long time, of a close relationship with that person. When we have seen and we've experienced firsthand for ourselves that they're trustworthy, then we can be confident as we rely on them. And to just explain this um, idea of trust built over time, I want to tell you a little bit about when I was first pregnant. So me and Stephen have four daughters, amazing daughters. And our oldest is nearly 12. So this, this is sort of going back 12 years. Me and Stephen at the time were only 18, very young. I look back now and think, oh my goodness. <laughs> now I understand why everyone was like, whoa, <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so I was pregnant for the first time. We were just 18. And I remember really clearly this appointment with uh, a midwife. 
where we were going through my birthing plan and I was saying how I wanted to have the baby in hospital, in Aberdeen Hospital. And she said to me, oh, well, you do realize that the policy is that you can only have one birthing partner. So this, I had never even thought about this, but suddenly I had to choose one birthing partner. And um, I basically had this choice between Stephen, who was, had been my boyfriend for three years. More importantly, he was the father of the baby. But he had zero experience of childbirth or babies or anything like that. Whereas my mum had a nursing background. She was the mother to six children. She'd had four home births herself. And more importantly, she'd known me my whole entire life. So I'd seen my mum's calm and practical response when things were going wrong and there was a crisis situation. When I had chicken pox, she gave me ice lollies in bed. It was amazing. <laughs> she nursed me back to health. When I grazed my knees, she gave me a big hug and comforted me. She knew exactly what to do in those situations. When I was afraid, if I'd had a nightmare, you know, she offered me reassure, re reassurement, sorry, reassuring. Re I'm not sure. Reassurance, that's the word. Thank you very much. <laughs> reassurement. I'm making up new words. Um, so this was a really difficult decision because um, I just had to, pick, I had to pick one. And I remember actually asking them, is there any way I can have them both there? No, there's not. You have to pick one. Okay. And when, you know, when I was kind of forced, really, uh, to pick between the two, I, I picked my mum. And there's not many decisions that, going back, I would actually change um, completely what I did. But if I could go back, then I would change my decision. Because now I know Stephen <laughs> very well. And I know that he is incredibly calm in a crisis situation. I know that he has very good, encouraging words, reassuring words, when I'm worried, when I'm in pain, when I'm in distress. So with him, trust has been built over time. And it's the exact same with Jesus, that the closer that we are to him, the longer that we've walked with him, the deeper our trust becomes. And every time that we face a new challenge, it's actually a new opportunity to experience firsthand just how trustworthy he is. And now, as a church, I don't know about you, but I don't think we want to be looking back in years to come and say to ourselves, like I did with that, if only we'd trust him more. If only I could go back and trust Jesus more. If only we knew then what we know now about Jesus, that he's never going to let us down. The sooner that we step out in faith, the quicker we can learn just how faithful God is. It's a bit like a game of poker. Now, I'm not encouraging anyone to gamble. <laughs> but I don't know much about poker. But as far as I'm aware, the more chips that are down on the table when all your chips are down, then there is a greater chance of a bigger reward. When the risk is really high and when the cost is great and when all our confidence is in Christ Jesus, these are the perfect conditions for strengthening our faith. But it is a step-by-step -step process, just like it was between me and Stephen. So it might be more helpful to ask ourselves, what is the next step for us? What is the next step for us individually or as a church? The next step of faith. This week, today. As we rely on Jesus one step at a time, we come to realize that he can be trusted with everything. And day by day, we will learn, as a church and individuals, that he is more than enough for what we're going through. And soon, we will find ourselves fully confident in him. So first and foremost, we are a family, a church family, placing all our trust in Jesus, in his love 
and his saving grace. The second ingredient that we're looking at is staying obedient to God. And I've taken this from verse 3, which says, This is love for God to keep his commands. So in this family, God is the father. He's our good and perfect dad. <laughs> He's at the head, and because of him, love is at the heart of our family. We love God because he first loved us. I absolutely love that verse. He has already shown us his love um, through things like his faithfulness, his forgiveness, his care and his compassion for us, his presence and his provision. And as his dearly loved children, which we are, we are called to show for him our love through our obedience. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, thank you. <laughs> in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it says that the church family is described as a body. Now, lots of us will have heard about this before, the body of Christ. So, it got me thinking about a body. I'm a pharmacist. I know a little bit about it. <laughs> I don't know everything, and we're always learning more. But the body has lots of different and diverse parts, but together they are one. They're united as one body. So, when we think about the body, which is a very beautiful but very complex thing, each part has its unique design, and it's a special ability. With every part functioning at its best, the whole body fulfills its purpose. And one of the most crucial parts of the body is the head. And why is it so important? Well, mainly because it contains the brain. Now, the brain is also known as the command center. It's the center of command, which means it's responsible for sending the messages messages and instructions and commands to the rest of the body. Now, imagine for a minute a body without a head. <laughs> a bit gory <laughs> for a Sunday morning. Um, but what would happen? There would be no command, no instruction, no messages sent to the body parts. They wouldn't know what to do. Or imagine that this body has a head, but the body parts decide to ignore the messages. They become a bit rebellious and decide to do their own thing. Soon, um, the eyes would lose their vision. The mouth would start to speak absolute gibberish. I sometimes do. <laughs> Stephen would say that. <laughs> I think it's a mum thing. <laughs> um, or, you know, the, tr the feet would kind of trip over hurdles. They'd lose control. And very, very soon, the body would end up in a complete mess on the floor. You see, God is at the head of the family. He's the brains behind the operation. He is the one who sends the command. He instructs us. He leads us. When we follow these commands, then the family has vision. We can see the things of God. We can hear his voice more clearly. We can speak words of truth and encouragement and hope to those around us. We can learn from our mistakes, and we can move forward together, united as one. So if we love God by keeping his commandments, Jesus says that he will make himself known to us. It's what he promises in John chapter 14, that he will come to this place and he will make Inverness Vineyard his home. 
That's what I want. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I want this to be Jesus' home. For God himself to be present whenever we meet. At the beers and the carols, we've already spoken about that, prayed for that this morning, that Jesus himself will be in that room. I, and I believe he will. <laughs> At small groups, when we just catch up over coffee, on Sunday mornings, at Christmas family services, for God to be present in the room. So we are a family loving our God through obedience, following his instructions so that we can fulfill our purpose. So what are the commands of God? It's quite a serious term, the commands. It's got me thinking, what are the commands? What does God command us? In Mark chapter 12, this is the exact same question that a Jewish teacher, a teacher of the law, asks Jesus. He asks him, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers by quoting two Old Testament laws, very familiar to us probably. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And he quickly follows it with, love your neighbor as yourself. And then says, there is no commandment greater than these. He doesn't choose one over the other. Love for God and love for each other are two sides of the same coin. We can't have one without the other. Verse 1 here in our passage today says, Everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. We know that we love the children of God by loving God. They're two sides of the same coin. So God, his instruction to us as a church and as a family is to love each other, which leads us to our last uh, key ingredient. So we express our love for God by loving his children, which means each other. Each and every person in this room, each and every person in all the other churches in Inverness, and every other Christian in the world. The word that John uses here is this word for love, which is agape. And many of you might have heard of this agape love before. But if you haven't, then what it means is to prefer each other, to choose one another over ourselves to choose you over me. It's unconditional love. It's self-sacrificial love. And it's the same word that Jesus used to describe the sacrificial love that he has for us in John chapter 13 when he said, a new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Now, the word for disciple means learner. We're learning to love. Jesus is the teacher, and we are the learners. We learn this agape love from him. He set the example for it. We can only know it through him. And when we love each other like this, it points others that don't know him to him. It points to his love. So the world begins to see him instead of us. And again, isn't that exactly what we want? <laughs> For people to look at us and see Jesus. When we speak, when we act, when we respond, that all of that would point to him. But let's be honest. <laughs> Honesty is also at the heart of who we are. Is that what the church has been known for? Here in Scotland, here in Inverness, a family who stick together, 
cheering each other on, building each other up? In some cases, yes. But the reality is that for many who don't know Jesus, their experience of the church family has been so far from family. Instead, it's been tainted by things like unkind words, cold hearts, double standards, judgment, criticism, possibly even total rejection. And when I speak those words, many of us here within the family might even be remembering past experiences. But we can't let this go on. We can't let history keep repeating itself because people are turning away from God. People are rejecting a relationship with him because of what they see in his children or what they've heard about them. Now, we're just a very small, very new little branch on this big, big family tree. <laughs> but in these early days, like I say, said earlier, we have an opportunity. We're laying foundations, and we have an opportunity to get it right. So I want to read a few passages from God's Word which set a standard to aim for. And as I read them, I just want to invite us all to reflect on where we maybe need to raise the bar. This isn't so we feel bad about ourselves. I just believe it's what God wants to do today. So I'm reading from Ephesians chapter 4. It's at the end, uh, verse 29, and it goes through to 5-2. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Get rid of bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with any form, every form, sorry, of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Colossians, and then, sorry, from Colossians chapter 3, 12 to 14. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So this is our vision for family. We long for people in this city and in this area to see Jesus when they see us, to hear Jesus through our words and to know his love through our actions. It's so important that we understand that this high standard of family is not achievable by our own strength. It's only by letting Jesus in and asking for more of his Holy Spirit that we can receive the forgiveness that we need ourselves to move on, the healing that we need ourselves to move on. For some of us, that might mean laying down painful things, a painful past, things that we've held on to for a long time. We can only forgive each other when we've forgiven others and receive forgiveness from God. We can only increase in our tolerance of each other when we appreciate just how tolerant our Father God is with our own failures. And maybe it's time that God highlights a few bad habits today. Again, not to make us feel bad, but so that we can, through his strength and our weakness, which is what we were singing earlier, move forward. 
Things like bl a blinkered mindset or a pattern of discouraging words or actions motivated by selfishness. I'm speaking to myself here. <laughs> then we need to ask the Holy Spirit to lead us into this day-by-day -day process of correction, into a new season of loving our church family, just as Christ has loved us and loves us. So, thirdly, we are a family who are learning to love one another, growing in our love for each other. Actually, just want, I think maybe we'll just pause and pray for a minute. Father God, thank you that we are so dearly loved. Not because we deserve it, not because of anything that we've, anything special that we've done. Lord, thank you that there's no such thing as earning brownie points. <laughs> Lord, today we recognize our weaknesses so that we can receive your forgiveness, so that we can receive the strength that you have for us. Holy Spirit, we need you more. Will you lead us? Will you guide us? We don't want to look back at these days and wish that we'd followed your instructions sooner. Thank you, God, for your love, for your mercy. Amen. So this week, I've been praying over these verses. And I was asking God, what is it you want to say? In these early days, to this small little branch of your family tree, as dearly loved children, what are you saying, God? And I just felt he gave me this word, cal recalibrate. That now is the time to recalibrate. Now, I don't really know much about recalibration, so I had to look it up. So to recalibrate means making small changes to an instrument so that it measures accurately and so that it works properly. And the second definition is making changes to the way that you do, small changes sometimes, to the way that you do or think about something. And this in, reminded me of an interesting fact that I've, I'd um, heard a while ago. And I looked it up again just to check that I've got it right. It was a fact about flying an airplane. I don't know, have any of you ever flown an airplane? It's one of those things I'd actually quite like to do one day. <laughs> maybe it was my 40th birthday or something like that. It's maybe a bad idea. <laughs> I've said it now. <laughs> but if you're flying an airplane one degree off course, just one small degree, for one mile, if you do that, you miss your target landing spot by 92 feet. If you fly like that for 60 miles, you end up one mile away from where you were supposed to land. If you decided to start at the equator and fly around the Earth, this is maybe too far. <laughs> I'm not going to do this. <laughs> I'll never come home. <laughs> but if you decided to go all the way around the Earth, one degree off, just one degree, would land you 500 miles away from your target. So the longer that you travel, even slightly off course, the further 
that you will be away from the target. It's time to recalibrate, even if it's a small amount of recalibration. There's a target, there's a goal, there's an aim. God longs to do this with us this morning. When it comes to our faith in Jesus, our trust in Jesus, he wants to slightly realign our course. When it comes to our obedience, in, um, our obedience to him, he wants to recalibrate it. Our love for each other. It's time to let him adjust the direction and correct those small one degree failures so that we're exactly on course for what he has for us as a church family. And last month, I'm just going to finish with this, but last month, it was just a couple of weekends ago, a few of us uh, went out into the city and we were meeting people and praying for them. And I can honestly say, I might get a bit emotional because it was amazing. God is so faithful. He's so good. We saw healings. But more importantly, people are captivated when you speak to them about God's love. They want to know more. Very few people turned away from that. His love, his presence was so evident. As soon as you began to share that hope, that message of hope with people, you could see it in their faces. Something shifted in their spirit. And over and over again, it was the same prayer requests. Everybody wants the same thing. I don't think I realized that. I kind of thought we were more different than that. But these are the things that people wanted prayer for. Good health for themselves or for a loved one. Financial security for their family. Political stability for our nation. Happiness for their children. And all these things have one thing in common, that everyone is longing for their future to be secure. For lots of people, it's it's an unknown thing. And our city is full of people who are flying off course. They're searching for a destination. They are. <laughs> I think that became evident the more I spoke to people. They are asking questions. Even young people. <laughs> I think I thought 20-somethings, you know. I was, I was one of those people not long ago, but I think I thought they were more oblivious to the big questions. No. <laughs> They are asking big questions. They are interested in this gospel message. So simply put, this is the message that we have, that we carry, that we have to share. Jesus says in John chapter 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And in this chapter, John declares that if we place our trust in Jesus, our future is secure, and we do live in a world of trouble. But through him, we have the victory. This is what we carry as a family. We are victorious. We are conquerors. We are champions. Because he has overcome the trouble in this world. We have overcome. I just wanted to encourage you with that this morning, that, there are, that people want, they want to be part of this family. They maybe don't realize that that's what they're searching for, but it is. So we are trusting, obedient loving family, ready to be recalibrated this morning so that we can join Jesus in overcoming the trouble in this world and in this city.